This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Colm Ograda, who is the Director of Data and Analytics at Tynes. So, Colm, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's all right. I'm uh, I'm pleased I just got through the introduction without kind of uh, messing something up <laughs> your name or the company or or something yeah, like some, that. Yeah, so. some tricky ones there for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, where we always start, Colm, is by asking our guests to give themselves a uh, I guess a brief introduction into their background and and journey up until this point in time, if you uh, would be so kind. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I guess like a lot of people, I got into data by accident. Uh, when I was in school, it wasn't a subject you could do. There wasn't really courses at third level for data, and it wouldn't have been on my radar anyway. Um, so for my undergraduate degree, I was in a completely different world. I was in health sciences, medical sciences. I did pharmacology. In college and struggled a little bit in terms of what to do afterwards. Um, so pharmacology, it's not pharmacy, so you don't generally go on to be a pharmacist. It's a little bit closer to like a physiology, understanding the body and how drugs affect the body. I didn't want to be a pharmacologist. Um, being honest, after four years of studying, I wasn't even quite sure what a pharmacologist was. <laughs> so um, I, I went a different direction and, and ended up studying business management for a while as I thought it kind of give me a little bit more strings of the bow and, and um, up my kind of perspectives a bit. And I did get a lot out of it, but being honest, um, coming from that kind of harder science background, I found so much was just so waffly. And, and you know, that like anyone could like take a list of something and, you know, slap your name on it, you know, columns, five principles, and it gets into a textbook, you know, <laughs> and, and it kind of bothered me a little bit that I wanted to, to, to get into something where there was a little bit more objectivity. Um, having said that, I, I think, you know, it, it was great to just get a little bit of that commercial mindset um, and, and something I wouldn't have done otherwise. So I did this kind of swift U-turn back into science and ended up doing a PhD. All of this was in Dublin, in, in UCD here in Dublin. Um, and the PhD was one of the best decisions I made, but not for the reasons I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. So when I went into that, I was maybe maybe a little bit lazy, uh, definitely like very unstructured, very reactive, you know, like how much do I need to do to get this done kind of a mentality. <laughs> yeah. Um, and frankly, that just wasn't going to cut it uh, in a PhD environment where it's it's largely up to you to to do the work and get out the other side. And I had a great supervisor who put the right amount of pressure on at the right time and it was like necessarily direct at times um, and came out the other side with just this very different mentality. And it was during the PhD that I first got into data properly. So before that, I always had an interest in, um, you know, even when I was a kid, like way back in the day from the computer science side of data, uh, like typing out programs on a Commodore 64 and all that kind of stuff. Like, so there was an interest there. But what happened was, as I was doing my studies, the PhD was was mostly based in a lab, doing lab work. And obviously that generates data that someone needs to analyze. 
And we had this incredible postdoc on a team who, who was doing a lot of that work for the research, but she ended up moving on. And I was left in this position where sort of someone needed to do it. I needed to do it to get my degree. And um, it was just this great discovery of, of I really enjoyed this stuff. And the academic environment's a little bit different. You have a little bit more time, get a lot of flexibility in terms of what you want to do and how you want to think about things. And you tend to go into a lot more detail and it kind of gets very niche. But it was this kind of creativity and, and like, how do you turn data into something productive and something novel, some real insight? Um, so as I came to the end of it, I tried to find a path to do it permanently um, and realized I didn't really want to spend time in a lab. The, the academic environment was um, probably not for me long term. And there was a friend of mine working at Google in London who... Uh, just by coincidence said, well, actually, we're, we're looking for somebody with a strong data background. And it was a foot in the door for me. So I started at Google in 2012, moved to London. Um, and another just great learning opportunity. I was based on the commercial side of the business, working with some of Google's largest uh, commercial advertising clients at the time. Um, and I was lucky that in terms of what they were looking for from partner team that they worked with was, was insights and information. So it's kind of uniquely positioned to provide them with that. Um, and, you know, there was some big adjustment going from the academic mindset of, you know, pure statistical rigor and, you know, all this to like directionally, is it right? And that was hard for me to kind of adjust to that, but like really important lesson, I think, along the way. Uh, so I was at Google for almost a decade, well, certainly nine years, um, started off, like I said, in that commercial team and then moved into a more technical team where we were, um, looking at, uh, kind of consumer insights and how can we use the data that Google has and, and the kind of compute engine that they have to do consumer insights in a really novel way, which is really, I think, probably the peak for me in terms of the work I did there. We just had a fantastic team. Um, everyone brought different things to the table, which is very exciting. I uh, spent a bit of time, moved to California for a while, worked in strategy and operations uh, at YouTube. The best way to describe that team is like, almost an in-house McKinsey function where you're thinking about things like what products do we launch where, you know, how do we structure parts of our business? Um, how do we respond to this lawsuit? You know, this kind of stuff. Hmm. Uh, lots of, lots of variety. Um, and then I made mostly for personal reasons, the decision to move back to Ireland, actually my first time working for Google in Ireland um, where I worked uh, within the trust and safety world for Google search. So, um, so again, super interesting leading bigger teams there. And a really interesting time to work in trust and safety, right? You think about COVID and the presidential elections and all of the stuff going on around the world over the course of one or two years. It was really in the deep end. Uh, and yeah, early 2022, I had been thinking about the next step for a while. I just hadn't found the right thing. I'd started looking around a couple of years, basically after I first moved back to Ireland, looking across Europe. And, you know, you get one or two offers and you go through, you just get something out of the process, a bit of a red flag. You're like, this just isn't for me. Either it's the role or, frankly, the people that you meet or you think, mm -hmm. no, nope, this is not going to work. Um, there's one in particular, I'm not going to mention any names, you know, um, amazing opportunity leading data for, for a very successful um, kind of late stage startup. And everything was going well till I met my boss to be, and I mean, he was like, "No, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be spending so much of my energy providing air cover to my teams that I'm not going to have the energy to focus on the right things and to be able to do kind of good work." Um, and then I, I found Tynes. Uh, it was a recommendation actually from a friend of mine in the VC world, 
and went through the process and no red flags. Uh, everyone I met, I kind of wanted the interview to go a little bit longer to hear more about what they're doing, to hear about the company um, and ended up finally making the jump in January 2022. And it was hard. I think Google makes it very easy to stay uh, up until recently, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was hard and, and kind of I have a very supportive uh, wife and family and kind of, you know, they realized it was time to and I finally ripped the bandaid off. And, and honestly, having a look back, um, I, I thought I would miss more of that big tech environment, whether it's the resources or the perks. And honestly, I just don't. Um, the ability to own something, to drive, to really build something has just totally outweighed all of that stuff. Uh, and yeah, delighted to be where I am today, leading data at times. Nice, nice. Yeah, thanks for that overview. I mean, such a fascinating journey. It does, um, it does really interest me the amount of people that that get into data out of a lab that mm. decide, you know, they they harness all of that um experience and skill that they've learned through kind of academia, but realize actually I don't want to spend my life in these between these four white walls, you know, and right. Uh, and it can be it can be very isolating, you know. Yeah. Sometimes when you're doing long hours in a lab like that, um, some people like that, and you know, I didn't dislike it from time to time. But yeah, it was just the pace, I think, of a commercial world, and the the kind of the speed at which you work with different groups of people. To me, uh, was very attractive. Um, and yeah, I think it is. It's it's another topic for another day. But like making that jump from academia into you know, non, you know, whatever field you're studying, not going into that, but going into something else within industry. I know a lot of people have done it and ended up in different places, consulting, for example, a lot of um, expertise. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting path to take for sure. Absolutely, yeah. So give us a little bit more information about about times then. So your Series B, um, yep. startup, yeah. scale up, I guess, right? Just talk us through who you are, what you do. Yeah, so Tynes, it's a no-code security automation uh, company. We're headquartered in Ireland. We've got customers uh, all over the world. Lucky to have great customers all over the world. Um, and our platform lets you uh, primarily automate repetitive processes, like startlingly quickly and easily. Um, so to massively oversimplify how it works, you have a workflow, which we call a story. It's built up from individual actions. And one of our I guess key tenets is keeping things really simple. So there's actually only seven types of, of actions. And with those, you can interact with external systems, process what's coming back, take actions, and so on. Fundamentally, it's really fun to play with. There's a free community edition anyone can sign up for. And we've seen people do some like wacky stuff in it, completely unrelated to security, which is great to see. Um, and, and the nice thing about it is because it's agnostic to what you connect it to, it'll work with anything with a REST API. So a lot of automation solutions, I'm not pitching here, but good to point out. Uh, and, and in fact, a lot of um, platforms that interact with other services work on this concept of an integration, yeah. right, which is super convenient. Uh, we've gone a different way. So if it's got a REST API, it will work. Um, and because of that, it's super flexible. And um, I've been able to use it in-house for a bunch of like data stuff um, that otherwise would require either a bunch of coding work or to buy some third-party solution um, where, you know, in a couple of hours, I've been able to knock something together to do something, you know, quite complicated and then have all of the built-in monitoring, tracking notifications, you know, and integrated Slack and so on so I can see how it's going. Yeah, some surprises. I wasn't expecting this, but um, there's been a few things where I've been able to to do stuff that otherwise would have been, like, very time-consuming or expensive. Yeah. 
that's a, that's really interesting so you're basically using your own product to help your the data analytics work that you're doing with inside the business <laughs> yeah i mean it, it sort of comes from the ceo owen down if there's some way we can at least try and do something with with our own product we try to do it as much to push the limits and learn um you know equally if we hit a wall we're like yep yeah, either the product's not there yet or it's just not for this we'll, we'll go off and do something else but it's always good to try like a lot of our marketing automation is built in times um security it lots of stuff we yeah we use it i think we're our own biggest customer yeah yeah nice makes sense um so i guess obviously you've you've been there uh, a short while now um yep. as you mentioned having left google which that always fascinates me when someone decides yeah. to take the jump from a from a place like google into then a a kind of you know small startup or smaller startup environment um just give us a, an overview of kind of you know the role that you've got in there to do really what's you know what are you tasked with achieving what's the purpose of you being there for times yeah so i was the first dedicated data hire at times uh last january but there had been a number of folks who were there before me who were doing stuff with data. I've been lucky that a lot of the decisions, the important decisions they made were, were like good decisions. Um, so our engineering team had made some good decisions about capturing data and where to store it and stack decisions. Um, and other folks had done some good work on the last mile, you know, getting that insights into folks' hands and helping them make decisions. But um, over the last year, ultimately my ambition is to just drive better decision-making across times with data. And I know that's kind of a bit generic and nebulous, but you know, at the end of the day, in a small company, there's a lot to do and, and you kind of have to roll up your sleeves and, and be more versatile than maybe in a bigger company. So that's that's been my ambition. I've been lucky. I think I've worked with, I've certainly worked with every team, every leader, probably everybody at this point in some, we're about certainly north of 150, 160 kind of folks. Um, so it's it's been just such a breath of fresh air to be able to, identify an area where we can make a difference with data and just do it. Um, there's no red tape. There's nothing holding you back. You're not having meetings and meetings and meetings about stuff. It just moves very, very quickly, uh, which is a delight. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, so so my role essentially is, is end-to-end. I've had to wear a number of different hats, whether it's on the data engineering side of the house, whether it's making sure that we have core reporting where we need it, whether it's diving in a little bit deeper on business, partnering with folks to understand specific things related to go to market or a product, um, or even thinking about what we're sharing with our customers. Um, so I I actually, I think about, there's like four main buckets of use cases at times, and this probably generalizes quite well to other companies as well. So there's, there's like a measure bucket, which is measuring the performance of the company, the teams, individuals, you know, as an account executive hit and a quota. Um, and we've done a lot of work in that. I think that's probably where we're most mature is just getting that sense of how are we doing and how do we optimize? Where should we prioritize? Um, the second bucket is, is kind of like an assist bucket. So it's one thing to measure, but how do you actually help people do their jobs better, right? So an area I've spent a good bit of time in the last year has been that top of funnel piece. How do we work out when uh, the leads that we're looking at are most leaned in? And when should our reps be picking up the phone? And how can we use data to really tune that in, the signals that we have, and boil it down into something like basically a one to five stars, right? Um, yeah, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of what goes into it, but making it digestible so that you can really take quick action off it. Uh, so that's the assist bucket. There's another bucket, which is kind of the customer bucket. What data do we or should we share with our customers to help them understand 
how they're growing their usage of the product, where we can help them more with customer success, how much time and, and potentially money they're saving through automation with times as well. That's something we're kind of a little bit less mature on. We're doing more and more and figuring out the best way to do that. Um, something I would have done a lot in the early days of Google with your advertising clients. And then the last bucket is, is actually embedding data within the product. Um, the nature of our product is not a ton of that right now. It's it's kind of down the road, but there's a lot of other products where the data is the product, right? You're building machine learning models and so on. So the majority of the use cases that I think about for data at times fit into one of those four buckets. Um, and I think over time, we'll kind of continue to grow each of them out. Um, I think in that order, right? I think just starting with really having the confidence in measuring the right things and optimizing against the right things and, and data being central to the strategy around that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's so much in there to unpack column. Um, and obviously the whole purpose of building high impact data teams is to get to the crux of how you can help your business, right? Ultimately, right. that's, the, that, that's yep. the reason behind you, you, you being there. I guess before we jump into that, I'm just really curious to kind of get your steer. Obviously you've, led large teams in you know a goliath organization such as google um but then equally now you're building out your team and capability in a series b startup that's 160 170 people um yep just give us a bit of context in terms of the size of the teams that you ran at google and obviously the size of the team now and i guess the key differences in your eyes between you know those two environments for for one and then yep. things that you need to consider um between the difference in those environments yeah so i think even how you define size of team is different in both environments right <laughs> i think yeah. you know you have this concept of the bench right where at google you have your own direct reports but then you're leveraging all of these different supportive functions and i don't just mean at google i think in any large organization um and and the other difference is that there's just different degrees of specialism right so Typically, at a large company, you're going to manage a group of folks who are going to have a certain similarity in terms of skill set or background, right? Data scientists or data analysts, the spectrum there, or data engineers and so on. Um, but you're going to have the support of all of the other categories of data-related roles working with you on things. Um, so you have this, you know, your, your focus is, is completely different to a smaller company where potentially your team's doing all of those things um, or trying to get some help from um, some other team that isn't kind of nominally a data team, but you need them to pitch in. Like I, I rely on my engineering colleagues a lot. They're fantastic uh, to, to do a lot of that stuff because we don't formally have a data engineering function yet. So I think there's that mentality between, you know, having your niche and all of these sort of supporting players lined up to help you versus being a little bit more of a generalist team um and and having to find the resources and the help you need informally to get stuff done uh, that's definitely been a big change the advantage there's disadvantage and advantages to both but i think the advantage with the the smaller model is there's less organizational distance between decision makers so you can make decisions really really quickly um sometimes it's you know just you making decisions quickly whereas in other places you need to pull in all different kind of supporting functions and and the various leadership that goes with that, um, it's just sort of exponential complexity. Uh, and then the downside is you have to do it all yourself, right? So, um, and there's generally less there to build from, right? So I think about Google, like 
there's not really, I don't think it would be true to say there's a central data organization at Google. Um, Google, in a way, is every product in some ways functions almost like a separate company. And each of them are going to have a data science team. They're going to have some data engineering and so on. Um, so it's just this kind of matrix organization when it comes to data. Uh, one of the things I did at Google, not not solo, but with one or two other folks, um, was try and bridge some of that kind of complexity, particularly on the commercial side of the company. When I started, there was maybe sort of 30 or 40, what we used to call industry analysts in the UK who were customer facing and, and, and provided a lot of the insights to customers. But outside of the UK within EMEA, there wasn't quite the same kind of concentration. Um, so what we tried to do is like bring that group together so that you could share learnings and, and just generally raise the game. And then that snowballed into, well, what about Asia Pacific region, they're even more fragmented. Can we help connect them? And then ultimately they kind of tie in behind the stuff going on in the US as well. And um it, it, that kind of building communities, I think, in a larger company is just such an important part of of particularly for more junior folks, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. where you don't have like we took it for granted in the UK with 30 or 40 folks, you could always turn to someone and ask them a question. If you're the only analyst, you know, in South Africa, um, you don't have that support, right? So by building those connections informally and having them peer-led as well, so it's not like some tokenistic leadership effort, but it's it's actually kind of peers helping each other out. That was, yeah, really transformational. Um, and I think, again, to contrast with smaller organizations, there isn't the need to do that just because everyone's kind of proximal to each other. Um, I think there's like a lot of different perspectives on what the right organizational structure looks like for data teams. <laughs> yeah. um, like Google oscillated a little bit between centralized, decentralized, centralized, decentralized. Every couple of years, it sort of flipped the switch on it. Um, I'm, I'm quite a fan of what Spotify have done with the kind of align to a function, but then also have the leadership um, more aligned with the kind of role type. Yeah. Um, so you have the best of both worlds. They called like the Helix model, or maybe that's what McKinsey calls it. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's, there's no one size fits all with this. Uh, what I'm excited about is is being able to react to how Tynes grows as a company, and to be able to shape that uh, that data function to best match how we grow iteratively, right? So, like, what works for us now is not going to be the same as what we'll need when we're bigger, and there's going to be steps in between. Um, and and I think that's personally been like, if not a challenge, it's sort of been an interesting. Like trying to shed the big company thinking and 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 get a little bit more into like the just do it, what do we need today um, mentality. Just like moving from academia to, to big tech, moving from big tech to small tech, there is a mentality shift you need to make. Um, and I'm, I've been lucky to, to have a few nudges here and there from folks when I start thinking a bit too big tech on things. <laughs> um, how, how do you get that, that balance right? Because obviously you talked at the start, you know, uh, I guess – if we were to frame this, you know, having a lot of resource at somewhere like Google, obviously, as, you, as you'd expect, and, you know, probably a fairly sizable budget to con be continually increasing that resource and different skill sets, um, et cetera. How do you get that balance right then between, you know, trying to create that high impact team in a smaller organization um, when you don't have as much resource and kind of, mm -hmm. I guess, going through that process of prioritization as to what is going to add the most value and be the most high impact? How do you kind of get that balance right then with the 
bigger picture thinking and you know starting to strategize how you think about the formation of that team thinking mm. you know 12 months ahead we're going to have different challenges so we don't want to build just for now because six months down the line we're going to be out of date as it were yeah i think you need to do it iteratively right you I think there's two things, and, and this is in some ways the same in a big company and a small company. It's better to have a plan you can change than no plan. <laughs> so it's good yeah. to know, you know, where you want to go longer term. Um I think you know the term like strong opinions loosely held comes to mind. Like this is, I think, where we want to go, and I'm pretty sure, but oh, I'm pretty confident it looks something like this, but I'm very open to being wrong. And we need to, you know, t- take it one step at a time. Uh so that's that's the mentality I'm taking. There's two aspects to it. There's the work of the team and then like how do you achieve that through hiring the right roles? So from the work of the team, um, we're a very small team. So as of today, the data team at Tynes formally is, is me. Uh, so with that in mind, I have to be fairly ruthless in prioritization. Um, so I say formally it's me. That, yeah, there are other folks who do data work. Um, and again, in a small company, you have to leverage all the resources that are available to you. But um, having that breath comes with the responsibility of, of being kind of ruthless in your prioritization, right? If, if there's something, there's a product and engineering challenge and there's a go-to-market challenge, like how do you choose which one to focus attention on? Um, a lot of that comes with experience. Uh, and it's easier in an environment like Tynes where we have a very open, sort of transparent culture and you can have that chat uh, with limited or no politics uh, and and try and work out where, where to spend that time. Um, that's a little bit harder, I think, at a larger company. But then again, because you tend to be specialized, it's not a challenge that you get as much. And then in terms of how do you build that in the form of a team, uh, at this point, when I'm hiring, I'm looking for people that are generalists and that are kind of fairly agile in terms of being able to pick things up fairly quickly and are are rather than someone who knows an awful lot about a particular subject i'm looking for someone who can solve a problem um rather than someone who's you know got a super deep technical skill in some area i'm looking at someone who can go and have a conversation with you know an executive figure out what the real problem is go away and have a think about it and then work together on actually solving it with data um the depths of you know, do they have software engineering levels of Python? Like that just doesn't matter at this point. Um, having that versatility. There's an example I use uh, back at Google. I was brought in to have an informal interview at the end of a process for an analyst. And um, the guy I was chatting to, he had applied for this analyst role. And at the time, you know, it was kind of SQL heavy stuff. And he was completely transparent and said, I've never written any of that, but I'm really interested. And you could tell there was a sincerity there. And within about six months of joining the team, he had probably surpassed the majority of his peers in terms of like that technical acumen. And what it came down to was someone who's willing to learn what they need to learn to get the problem solved, right? Um, and that's what I'm looking for when I when I try and hire folks. It's like, is there a competency? Is there like an aptitude? I don't mind if you haven't done exactly this thing, you know, or if you don't haven't used this platform before, but like, do you really want to, are you interested? And do you have the potential to learn? Um, And I think particularly at that earlier stage career level, those are the things that are are really critical. Um, And then 
when when people ask me, you know, how do I know I'm doing well? My kind of mark of of what a truly well performing either an analyst or data science is are are people inviting you to their meetings before you've had a look at the data just to get your opinion on things, right? To me, that is you are doing your job well. It means you've built trust. They think you understand the problem, the business well enough. They know you'll go away and do a bit of thinking yourself anyway, and they just want to hear your take on it. Um, so to me, that is the sign of someone who's doing their job really well. I think conversely, if if that's not happening, you need to ask, well, well either there's a process there and you're not getting the exposure and visibility you need to, or there's like a trust issue where, you know, they, they just don't want to hear what you got to say, which is the problem. So to me, you know, whatever else about output, I think that to me is a really critical thing to look for. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think um, we're probably very, very guilty in this industry of um, highlighting certain skills, you know, often technology related mm-hmm. that the business use that, you know, is kind of required as a must have. And we get so hung up on that, that we forget to sometimes assess the other things that are equally, if not more important, like problem solving, right. like having that, you know, willingness and aptitude to go away and, and kind of tackle a problem and being able to speak to stakeholders and et cetera, et cetera. So that makes um, makes complete sense. I guess, given the infancy of the stage that you're at and now looking to build out that capability, um, how do you define what roles you're going to need within what timeframes, again, related back to how you, you know, create the most impact that, that you can? Yeah, so at this point, I'm thinking more about how do we build certain competencies within the team rather than hiring specifically into kind of more specialized roles. So um, if I think about the next 12 months, right, rather than thinking, do I need to hire a data engineer? Do I need someone who's, you know, a very technical data scientist? What I'm thinking is, well, I know what our strategy looks like for the next 12 months. I know some of the things that we're going to have to figure out to pull that off. So what capabilities do we need on the data side to make that happen, to be as likely as possible of success? So rather than do I need to hire a data engineer is do I have enough data engineering knowledge within the team to get us where we need to there? Do I have enough bandwidth within the team to be able to work with the critical business functions to be able to make sure they have the insights they need to be able to challenge them on things where we need to be more objective, to be able to dive in and, and really answer some of those tricky questions or pose the tricky questions. Um, and I think a, bit, a little bit more at a team level than at an individual level. And then when it comes to hiring, it's revisiting that and thinking about, well, do we need to tweak the profile a little bit to fill in a gap there somewhere? But I think Certainly for the next 12 months, it's it's still quite a generalist profile, but maybe dialing up or dialing down specific elements, depending on where we see the need across the company. Uh, and that, again, is like a huge contrast from, you know, where you have a well-established team and you need to, you know, oh, we need someone who's really intimately familiar with this machine learning framework, right? Because we're building something there. Uh, maybe down the road, that's where we'll be. But I think for the time being, it's aligning really closely to what we need to support the business. Um, and trying to kind of forecast a little bit, but giving ourselves enough breath that even if things change slightly, we're able to to manage that and, and do the best job we can as a function. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So effectively taking on board 
the business strategy, the data strategy that you've got out of that, and then trying to look at it from more of a team competence perspective of delivering against those objectives rather than we need X skill, you know, X, yep. whatever the case may be. Makes yep. perfect sense. I guess next question then, mm. given where we are potentially heading from an economic standpoint, um, yep. and obviously, you know, you hear all the time, um, more often than we'd like for sure, about you know data teams being disbanded in times of uncertainty or downturns or whatever the case may be, which you know again is is a completely other conversation for another time sure. about how that's viewed internally and, and all that type of stuff. But I guess you know keen to hear your thoughts on where you're at. You're just about to start building this capability. Um, if you know the worst comes to the worst, how, how do you kind of make sure that you keep hold of what you've got or continue mm. to get business investment into that? that area and and i guess you know how you then prioritize that again because I, I guess um it's one of those things right everyone would love an infinite budget and and resource right sure to kind of yeah. you know go and do more things do it quicker do it better do it more at uh, more scale etc but obviously in a smaller business that's not always possible right so how, how do you tackle that if if you know the the market does turn yeah a couple of things to unpack there i think like one is if we take the unsta- like if we ask the question like why are these why are there these layoffs you know across big tech there's just a lot going on at the moment if we take the uncynical view which is that it's preparing for a you know moderate sustained economic downturn then there's this kind of the, the next question in my mind is well if we're predicting this turbulence this kind of economic storm do you need better maps and information or or worse, right? And I think when it comes to data, um, if you have the right function set up efficiently in the right way, it's a huge competitive advantage in a situation where a lot of businesses are, are going to feel a pinch. Um, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic it's not going to be a as cataclysmic an economic downturn as some people are predicting. But even in it, like we think a couple of years ago, back to um, when the pandemic started, and that was a huge adjustment for a lot of businesses. Uh, a differentiator in a lot of cases was digital overall and, and looking at a kind of additional channels, but data and, and, and using that as part of a digital transformation process. And I think in a way, it feels a little naive to cut back on a data competency when you're entering into a time of uncertainty, a time of increased need for competitiveness. Um now that being said, not all data functions are equally efficient. Um, you know, there are. It's easy to build a bloated data function. I think you can have a lot of like, if you have a lot of hyper specialized folks, how do you make sure they're being utilized efficiently and effectively? Where if they're very niche, right, it's it's hard to do. Um, I think in some ways it's a little bit easier at a smaller company where you've got generalists because you're more agile, you're able to pivot. Um, you can deploy more quickly to areas where you need to to have um, the resource. Uh, and then the, the other piece kind of personally is, so when I started at Tynes, I had the frank conversation I was starting about how quickly I could get to grow out my team, right? As a lot of people do, particularly coming from Google with, you know, we're a larger team. But what I didn't want to do is just like start hiring aggressively out of the gate. I wanted to first understand what do we need to do here? Like how many people do we actually need and, and what are they going to be doing day to day? Um, one of my biggest frustrations of managing at a larger company is you often adopt a team. So, you know, you, you, you take on a role as a leader and you've got a team, there's your team, right? And 
And maybe either you want to take it in a different direction or organization, the team needs to move in a different direction. And you're, you want to be a good leader. You want to support your team and help them to grow. Um, and it creates this tension, right? In that the team functionally needs to go one way. The people on the team, maybe you want to go in different directions. Someone was like, I really just want to be a more technical data scientist. And you're like, that's great. But as a team, there's this basic reporting stuff we need to do, right? And it creates pain. Um, so when I joined Tynes, I wanted to get a sense of like, what's the true need here for the profile? So if I'm going out and hiring, I can be 100% transparent with someone and say, look, there's a large component of this role. We're going to be doing some pretty basic reporting. It's not going to be all of it, but that's going to be part of the job, right? Um, rather than having to have that conversation who's been in seat for two years and doesn't want to hear it. And, and you know, the crisis, because again, like you want to be a good leader. And I think particularly within data, for folks who've been in data a bit longer, we've a responsibility to, there's just... It, you know, data isn't, we don't have these nice clear career paths that, you know, if someone's in sales, you start off as a BDR and you're an AE and you're a sales director and so on. We don't really have that. Um, it, it's starting, I think, you know, you, you do see you do see more of a path um, starting to appear, but it, it's, it's not as clear. So, yeah, you get this tension. And I think that was something I really wanted to avoid. Um, so I wasn't in a hurry to just sort of like hire uh, randomly. Um, so, so I think, you know, when you're in a small company, having a little bit of being circumspect about do you do you really need this to put in the company first right like people are expensive um do, you know, what, what are we going to do like what value is this person going to be able to provide both individually and then as part of the team what's the team going to be able to do when we hire that we couldn't do before and and making sure everybody's like crystal clear on that before you go ahead so you're not having to answer those questions later um i think that's really important and again, kind of easier to do in a small company where those conversations are within a smaller group of people, right? Um, but I do think, you know, as we look at the next kind of two years, if if we do have this uncertainty, uh, companies who have invested in data sensibly and have a good strategy around it and have that like little bit of agility to be able to, to kind of make choices quickly, I think are going to be at an advantage. Um, I... I think companies who have sort of shed huge proportions of the data team where there was an opportunity maybe to, to kind of reorganize or kind of redeploy against more kind of commercially critical functions. I, th I think they've made potentially some mistakes there. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic. I think, you know, just like we saw in COVID data has been a differentiator. And I, th I would hope that the lessons learned from that will translate into the next year or two as well. Yeah. I 100% agree. I mean, I've been keeping a close eye on, you know, all of the the literature that's coming out about these supposed, you know, uh, the, the the layoffs that's happening and this supposed downturn and and so on and so forth. And I've seen, you know, some <laughs> some very interesting stats, which um, to the to the cynical mind might not completely compute with the fact that these companies are doing all that bad. You know, there was, a, mm. I think it was a between Amazon, Google, and um, who was it? Amazon, Google, and I can't remember one of the other big ones, but um, they made Meta, maybe. Yeah, possibly. They made something like 30, 32 billion in profit between them in, Q, in, <laughs> in one quarter. Um, How bad? And that was at the end of last year. So you kind of look and think, well, they're not they're not doing too bad. But and then I saw something yesterday, which was a, a an article out of kind of Yahoo Finance about the stock exchange and so on and so forth. And um, basically, that kind of showed the net gain of hiring. Um, mm -hmm. And Amazon was something like through the pandemic hired 
nearly 750,000 people. So they've, wow. so they've shed 18,000 and obviously everyone now is kind of losing their mind about these 18,000 jobs lost. But I guess for me, that just looks like they saw a, a competitive advantage to be gained out of a bad situation. And fair enough that they, they took it and it's kind of more of a, you know, a, a normalization of the market, but the net gain in comparison to where we were pre COVID is still absolutely huge in terms of the number of people they employ. So it's, um, it's a really interesting dynamic. And uh, the other thing to, to probably consider here is that it's actually, you know, fortunately for this community of data folk, it's, it's not often the data or tech people that get released, right? It's, you know, internal talent team, sales team, operationals, you know, for Amazon, I'm sure it's a big chunk of their supply chain people that they now don't need in warehouses and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think look, the, the media, the media love a, a bad news story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is, so you're right. I mean, I saw similar stories about profit figures and you think, wow, they're making that much money and letting people go. But, but you know, particularly data folks tend to look at things over time, right? And um, when you look at the trends in terms of profit growth and, and and the general kind of how that looks relative to market growth and so on, it paints a slightly different picture. Mm. Uh, without getting into too much, I think everyone's got their own kind of take on on like the layoffs and how they happened and so on. Um, certainly not perfection, but uh, yeah, I think, I, I think we'll probably still see a little bit more of that unwinding before hopefully it slows down. Um, but yeah, if you're... I, th I think if you kind of have an efficient data team where there's clarity around the value that it's providing, and that's just about getting the basics right, you know, um, the more complex the work is and you're dealing with, you know, super complex, particularly in machine learning and AI, which is in vogue at the moment, um, it, you know, how much does your CFO understand that, right? <laughs> Versus the, the basics of, are we measuring our performance? Do we understand what we're doing? Are we having impact in terms of you know growing our revenue and our customers and our product adoption? And how is data contributing towards that in a really tangible and articulable way? You're going to be in a much better spot than, oh, we just updated our, our latest AI model. Um, like Unless that's your product, then you've got a little bit of work to do in terms of selling that value internally. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. I think the whole you know, quantifying and articulating the commercial benefit of that team in an organization is absolutely fundamental to kind of how that organization views what you you do, right? You know, when you get into this yeah. whole whole debate around, you know, well, we've been cut and we're seen as a cost center and it's kind of like, well, unfortunately that's right. because, you know, the powers that be don't quite see you as a value generating um kind of components of the business, unfortunately. So, um, well, conscious of, of time, column, a couple of things I sure. want to finish with. Obviously, there's the, the whole artificial intelligence play is getting stronger mm -hmm. and stronger. You know, I think every other post on LinkedIn now is something about chat GPT, right? Um, yeah. I guess what role kind of as these trends continue to, to come and no doubt they will continue to, to come, um, what role do you think that they play in kind of the role of a data team and business and the general data and analytics sphere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the chat GPT has been an interesting one because it's been so public in terms of it's the technology, uh, my understanding, you know, I'm not gonna say my understanding is limited. Like I've, I've worked in the AI space, you know, certainly at Google for a while, 
But my understanding of ChatGPT is like the fundamental underlying technology isn't exactly brand new, right? This concept of a large language model has been around for, for a while. It's got better over time. I think the difference with ChatGPT is the availability and how easy it is to use and play with and get that wow factor. Um, you know, if you need to write some Python to use something that writes off 99% of people, but if you can go to a website and play with it, then immediately it just changes perception so much. Um, so in terms of how it affects data as an industry, as a, as a kind of career and a profession, I think it's important that people understand ChatGPT as a, as a kind of as an example of, of the underlying technologies and have a sort of sense of, of how they work and so on. I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure how disruptive it's going to be. Um, I've had folks ask me, like, could GPT-3 replace Google, right, as a sort of mechanism for search? Um, and you know, my, my understanding would be Google probably have similar underlying technologies. There's probably already some of it in the products that you use. Um, but the challenge is how do you, you know, a couple of things. So does, does ChatGPT kind of represent this like tipping point of AI replacing people's jobs and so on? I, I don't think so, simply because the technology has been there for a while. Um, I think what it does do is it kind of wakes people up a little bit to how we can use AI more as a tool. So if I think about um, a couple of like toy examples of how something that was useful in data, like people spend a lot of time like writing really basic code for like SQL scripts and so on. It's repetitive. It's like fairly relatively like easy to do. Um, something like a tool like that could make an analyst much more efficient. So um, at the first level, just like writing kind of boilerplate stuff that people spend loads of time doing and empowering people to actually think about the business problem. Um, and I think that's where people still are going to have such a fundamentally important role is if you understand, like understanding the business problem that you're trying to solve. Yes, tools and technologies like AI will help you maybe solve for some of those things. But unless you understand what you're actually trying to fix in the first place, they're, they're not going to be much use to you. So I don't, I don't think it's going to be as big a disruptor as um, the kind of the press kind of thinks it is at the moment, simply because from a technology point, it's not that novel. The accessibility makes it novel and makes people aware of what's potentially already there and behind the scenes in a lot of products. Um, I think it's really interesting. I'd, I'd be kind of interested to see, like, will someone try and monetize it? Um, you know, will they try and create a chat GPT search engine? I think the challenges with that is like one of the things a lot of people look for when they search for things is, is like fresh information. So when you have a big model like that, you know, how do you, the expense of keeping it trained to to have up-to-date information all the time is like quite a complex problem to solve for. Um, having said that, there's potentially a role for something like that to play as part of a search experience where you want to ask a question and get a natural language response. You know, like what is the best um, speakers that I can buy and why, right? And to actually get like a, a prose response to that explaining things. I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. Um, but yeah, it's an exciting space. I think other thing is like, Thinking about AI, not to be distracted by some of these more public examples like ChatGPT, um, AI and ML, actually, a lot of the real value and disruption, I think, is going to be in more subtle behind the scenes way, where you have more automated decision making, and you're able to kind of sift through very large amounts of data that otherwise would be kind of hard to get value out of. I think that's kind of more interesting to me. You think about it and feels like 
medicine uh, from you know of some friends who work in that area some super interesting stuff or even legal like understanding contracts and, and this type of thing that are um you know t- tend to be the less exciting work for lawyers to do but rather than replacing the lawyer you assist them in their work with this and i think that's probably what we'll see first is these assistive technologies being born out of ai rather than this kind of fear that knowledge workers are going to be replaced um maybe in 100 years but i think in for the time being it should it should actually make hopefully people's lives easier and more efficient yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more i think like the whole conversation around any ai tech or tool it's about freeing up the human time to focus on the more high impact work right, right that that kind of technologies and tools can't do in terms of engaging with the business and so on and so forth so makes perfect sense um last question then i guess any um any kind of tips hints tricks anything that you think might happen trends wise from i guess data as a career discipline yeah um one one is i would encourage like similar to myself i i didn't have a classical data background i don't think such a thing exists maybe it does nowadays um i would encourage people who are interested in in data at, at like exploring it more as a career option and not being put off by a lack of specific skills. Um, You can learn pretty much any of the technical aspects yourself. Um, I I always find, I always recommend people like the best way to learn how to do something is to like have to learn, like set yourself some project or goal and and like pick it up as you go. Um, You know, doing doing things out of a textbook is is tend not to be a very good way to learn things. Um, But then on the other end, I think what I'm excited about is folks who've been around longer there's like more and more of us um so what does that top end of the market of the kind of career ladder look like and it's it's just so variable today i think over time we're going to hopefully get to more consistency in in what these roles look like um and then the step after that i think the thing as i think further down the road for my career is you know small companies don't have a cdo role but let's say hypothetically that's the direction I go in. Like, what do you do after CDO, right? Um, do you do CDO at a bigger company? Or is it a case of, well, actually, the the components of being a good CDO translate well into being a good chief strategy officer or COO, right? And um, those are the things that I think are particularly interesting for data leaders who've been in the game a while is how do you continue to build your skill set and experience and the breadth of what you do and that comes back down to the things we've been talking about, about the basics of, you know, your job isn't to just throw data at people. Your job is to help grow the business. And your skill set in data is, is kind of the way you do that. But um, ultimately, you know, how do you continue to grow that? It's not just following that path. So, so that's something that's really interesting to me. And I think about friends of mine who've made transitions at a senior level out of data into other roles. And then how do you continue to, not abandon that data experience, but to use that and empower yourself within those roles to kind of provide additional value. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the whole space has just evolved so much, even in since I joined Google in 2012 to where it is now across big tech and small, it's maturing. Um, and I think at every level, we're starting to get a bit more clarity and consistency on what these roles look like. Um, and I'm hoping that's like easier for people in years to come to kind of chart that path through rather than to kind of have to forge it in each step. But um, yeah, I've certainly had a great time doing it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the lack of standardization at the moment is is a challenge, but you know that's just a maturity thing, and and it will get better with time, I'm sure. But I think one thing I try to um, kind of keep people and and data leaders specifically kind of eyes and ears open to is that the CDO role isn't necessarily the pinnacle, or it shouldn't right. be. You know, you're gonna yeah. you're, you're gonna pick up a, a whole host of skills that by the time that role has matured and you know there's a lot of people had the experience of that role there'll be new roles coming into you know the i read a mckinsey report today about a chief transformation officer which Mm. you know anyone that's been a cdo or is on that pathway probably has the skills to move into that role especially given how much you know we're expecting the, the the impact we're expecting data to have in organizations in the future right you know so the whole data landscape should be perfectly placed to pick up maybe some of these new innovative roles or you know like you said even a even a strategy role or a or a kind of coo role where you know data should flow through the organization as a you know an operation so it's uh an interesting space but uh yeah colin look really appreciate your time um thank you so much for speaking with us today and um yeah we look forward to seeing how the rest of your journey at times unfolds thanks very much that's it for this episode of driven by data the podcast i hope you enjoyed it i'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics until then Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Bye.